Welcome to Doctrine and Devotion, a podcast that explores Christian faith and practice from a Reformed Baptist perspective. My name is Joe Thorne. I'm the lead pastor of Redeemer Fellowship in St. Charles, Illinois. And today we are excited to bring back uh, somebody. This will be his second time on the podcast. And uh, so why don't you give a welcome to Pastor Steve Meister. Steve is one of the preaching pastors at Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sacramento, California. Steve, thanks for risking it all, your reputation, uh, your, your character, uh, any associations that were valuable in the past are now probably going to be damaged because of this, but thanks for coming on, man. We appreciate it. Hey, it's great to be with you, brother, and uh, um, really appreciate the the repeat invite. It uh, doesn't happen often for me, so uh, you're either very uh, brave or foolish. We'll find out. Well, you know, it turns out that uh, you were the last guy on the list. I had like, I and only had like 57 people on the list, <laughs> and nobody wanted to come up. No, man, I loved having you on. Um, I'm always encouraged by you, challenged by you, and uh, and I've just been thinking about some stuff, and and I, I know you're thinking about them because I see you tweeting about them, and uh, so I thought like, well, let's just get Steve on on the show again, and we'll talk a little bit about about what's going on and how we can begin to think about it and uh, and maybe grow together. You know, I, it seems like there's a whole lot of Christians out there that uh, that almost don't believe in this idea that we are one church, like in, in, in uh, at the universal church level. And because of that, yeah. brother, it seems like it seems like there's a whole lot more hostility out there than there should be. Nevertheless, hey, what um, what's what's new? What's going on? And last time we talked, you know, I think it was more the beginning of summer. Uh, how are things happening over there in Sacramento? Things have been good. You know, I've actually not been in Sacramento for a few weeks, enjoyed some vacation with my family. I'm actually from the Central Coast, the, the beautiful part of California. So I enjoyed time going back home, back here in the valley here in Sacramento and just getting my feet on the ground. We're having some uh, uh, seminars. So we had Dr. Peter Sammons earlier this summer from the Master Seminary do Attributes of God and having my uh, good friend, Dr. Mike Abendroth, or No Compromise Radios coming this weekend to do Law Gospel. So I'm um, doing that and getting prepped for getting back in the pulpit here in a couple of weeks. So um, things are going well. So, you know, sometimes there's this charge out there that uh, Reformed Baptists are going to slowly evolve or devolve into Roman Catholics because, you know, they read some church fathers or they read Aquinas. Are, 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 is there the same level of concern that you will become a dispensationalist by, uh, you know, fellowshipping with people from Master's Seminary? No, I don't think so. Uh, I mean, that uh, I crossed that bridge a long time ago or left that behind, pun intended, uh, a little while ago and uh, been there, done that. But greatly appreciate uh, my brothers still and, and are thankful for uh, the common cause we can have in God's Word. For sure. It's it's interesting because, you know, I, I've, I've known, I mean, I went to a dispensational Bible college, uh, Moody. I've had a number of friends graduate from Dallas and friends from Masters. And even though I have, as Reformed Baptists, we have theological disagreements at this point with uh, certain aspects of the school's theology, uh, they've turned out a number of brilliant uh, pastors and theologians who, um, who I, I really respect. And so it's, you know, that's a testimony to the school. Like, uh, I tend to think there ought to be some, some freedom in where you land and how you articulate your, th- your theology, while every school should have a confessional identity. But uh, I've been impressed with a, with a number of godly, uh, really sharp people that I've seen come out of DTS and masters who, which aren't schools that I would initially send people to. Right? It's not they're not bad schools, but it's sure. like if I'm looking for one that has a confessional identity, it's going to be a different one. So yeah, man. And so uh, when did you graduate there? Uh, 2007. 
Okay. So yeah, it was 2007, and I I was an associate pastor in a uh, you know a church be consistent with that dispensational. And you know, long story short, I I uh, swam the Thames to the second London uh, in the midst of that time and my studies, and it was actually in the middle of a sermon series on Ezekiel. Mm-hmm. And I realized I had to stop preaching or I was going to start saying things that were going to be unsettling for the uh, dispensational standards of the church at, at that time. And so then I've been um, here at Emmanuel Baptist, uh, Second London Church for uh, over eight years now. Oh, wow. That's cool. That's cool. So you've been there for a year. How long have you been a pastor then? Since, I guess, since 2007, you've been vocational? Well, I actually... Uh, served at Children's Hunger Fund for a couple of years, which is a Christian relief organization, mm-hmm. wrote curriculum for them and did that for a little while out of seminary, was still at Grace Community Church in Los Angeles. And then I, uh, 2009 is when I started pastoral ministry. Okay, cool. Very cool. So um, most most our listeners um, and people that, that know you and follow you are probably dialed in, you know, somewhat to uh, what's, what's on my mind and some of the things that you've been talking about. And that is the sort of the the encouragement from some like you to understand what a lot of people call reformed catholicity uh to embrace you know uh the 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 church and and the history and the heritage that has resulted in reformed thought and ultimately reformed baptist thought it involves hermeneutics and everything so we're, we're hearing that on the other hand we're hearing from people who are sounding alarm bells and saying like there there is there are people who 10 years ago weren't saying these things and now they're saying these things about reading thomas aquinas and we need to be concerned um can you just maybe paint a a simple picture for our people our listeners that uh that explains like what this what this back and forth though there isn't a lot of direct interaction (laughs) it seems to me but what this back and forth is all about like what are why are some people upset why what is the issue here that is actually relevant that's worth discussing thinking through and even debating yeah i think it's impossible to discuss this without really just beginning with some of the shifts that happened in the late 18th 19th centuries in how we approach the bible how the Bible was moved from uh, and serious theology and, and hermeneutics were moved from the church into the academy. And a lot of the shifts that came out of the Enlightenment, uh, as well as the movements that impacted particularly Baptist churches and, and really all American churches in the 19th century. Um, you had the Campbellite movement that was no creed but the Bible and, and really uh private interpretation trumped what anyone had ever said or thought about scripture. Uh, you have even, you see, I think still today, uh, the impact of the landmark movement and, and the denial of the universal church uh, still impacting us. You have the revivalism and the uh, experiential, maybe even mystical emphasis on uh, the Christian faith, excluding um, the objective faith that we confess. And so you have all of these mixing together that have become intuitive, have become the default presuppositions unexamined by by probably the majority of American Christians. Um, and we're really out of step with the stream of church history and how Christians approach the Bible and how we have understood ourselves as in a stream of history of a church that Christ is building. And so you've had generations now of pastors and uh, good brothers, uh, well-intended, 
who've been reading and thinking with these presuppositions unexamined um, and ministering that way. And in recent years, recent decades, with, with good historical study, a better understanding of our confessional standards, we have a good call to, hey, we're, we're the anomaly in church history here, and we need to come back to how Christians have understood the relationship of Scripture and the church um, since, since the days of the apostles. That's good. It, you know, one of the things that you mentioned, and I, I, I see all of that. I think that's a really helpful way to kind of set up the context in which uh, some of this discussion is happening. But uh, you mentioned, you know, private interpretation, right? The whole uh, it's me and my Bible, and you know, maybe you could speak to the uh, speak to that a little bit and how it works because I, I'm sympathetic to how we wound up there, especially when you know. Uh, at the time, like there was a whole lot of enlightenment thinking and a lot of push, a lot, there was liberalism coming into the church and then people were dispensationalists in particular were resisting that stuff and were really saying, no, we're going to hold on to scripture, sola scriptura, we're going to hold on to it. But it seems like in pushing back against, uh, you know, German liberal theology or pushing back against uh, some of those, some of those ideas that, that divorced scripture from its innate authority that people wound up almost feeling like they're just left with them and their Bibles. It's like, that's all they had. They, they, they didn't feel like their tradition, especially when the traditions that they were a part of, uh, many of them were going more liberal, right? When they're, when they're starting to drift. Yeah. So I, I'm sympathetic to how they, how people wind up in the situations they wind up in. But why, why is it problematic to have a view like, well, listen, ultimately I'm, I have to interpret scripture. What's wrong with, I mean, aren't we all captive to our conscience as we read the word? Why is it problematic? And how, how is it even possible to avoid this idea? Like, well, in the end, it is just me and my Bible. Cause that's, I know what some people are going to say in the end, it's still going to come down to me and the Bible. So why are you, why are you pushing back against that? Yeah, we certainly, I would agree with you that we wouldn't want to deny the impact of bad churches, uh, churches that have failed in church discipline, which is a whole other topic that is not insignificant to the issue of the growth of liberalism in, in churches or denominations as a whole. But I think just starting at the basics, we have to remember that God has never given his word to his people apart from the means by which they would be helped in both interpreting it and being instructed in it. Even take the example in Acts 17 that we often hear around being a good Berean. Now, that phrase is often used today by a singular Christian who's assuming that what a good Berean is in Acts 17 is someone who went with their Bible in their room and checked to see if, you know, the pastor got it right. Um, the Berean, there is no such thing as a good Berean singular because the Bereans were plural and they were instructed in God's word by the proper authority, which were the apostles who were in teaching them God's word. They received it together. They were examining it. That participle there in Acts 17, 11 is plural. They were examining the scriptures together um, to see that it was so what was being said. Uh, there was no, there was no such thing actually in that time as a personal Bible, the, mm -hmm. the scripture were scrolls. Um, and so, uh, so it was always a corporate endeavor. It was a community endeavor. And so that's usually how I try to explain this is God has always given his word in his community. Mm -hmm. um, now that community is not an infallible interpreter. We have to right. sharpen and challenge each other, correct each other and all the imperatives we see in scripture. Um, but it is a community. And it's really just when we think about that, it's in terms of the, the breadth by which of the community we're talking about. Are we talking about the local church we're part of? 
Are we talking about the association of churches we might be a part of? Or are we talking about the single universal Christ down through the ages? Uh, but whatever, whether we're talking about a narrow lens or a wide lens, uh, we're talking about the community of the saints uh, to which God has given his word and in the context of which we're to understand it. Yeah, I love it because it's, I mean, when you lay it out that way, it is very clear. God has given us his word. He's given us his church. He's given us teachers and preachers in the church. He's given us it all. And that's how it all works. It all comes together. And maybe, maybe it's, uh, it, <laughs> some people I think are maybe, a, I, I don't want to get psych, too psychological here, but you know, when I became a Christian, I didn't know the story of Cain and Abel. I didn't know anything. I, I do very, very little, right? I, I knew God created Adam and Eve because I read I read a little bit of the beginning of Genesis and I had been hearing about Jesus and I'd read, read some of the gospels. So I learned enough sinner accountable to God, Holy God sent his son, die for my sins, death, resurrection, all thing. So, um, but I had no background, no Sunday school. So I was, I was nervous. It, like, I don't like, I don't know what to believe, right? I, how am I supposed to know? And I knew I could trust the word cause that's what right. God used to convert me. I was converted while reading Matthew on my bedroom, on my bed in my bedroom. So I was hungry for the word, always reading it. And I read it, it made sense. But whenever I, whenever I came to a place where I was like, I don't know what to do, I never felt like, well, I just need to pray on it and then I'm going to come up with the answer here. I just never did because I actually knew, I didn't know how limited I was in my understanding, but I at least recognized like I don't have anything to really hold on to. I, I need the church and the church doesn't have to help me. And when my church began to call me a Calvinist before I had ever heard the word, just because I was talking about scripture, they're like, whoa, 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 you're a Calvinist. And I'm like, I don't, first of all, how dare you? I don't know what that means, but how dare you call me that? I don't know what that is. Um, and so I, I didn't, like, I was just really kind of oriented to figure it out. And I wonder how much like personality actually plays into some of this, right? The more entrepreneurial, you know, uh, you know, self-starter kind of guy likes to maybe go that way. And other people maybe are a bit more, uh, maybe they lack the self-confidence or whatever to, to press into it. I know that there are personality differences and, and I know some people talk about that as it relates to different theological streams and I don't, I don't ultimately buy into it, but I would, I would think that as we're moving along that a, a general tendency to recognize our limitations forces us to look to the church that has gone before us to help us to make sense because at, I don't know a gr I know some great theologians. I don't know any great theologian that I really admire who is arrogant. All the great theologians that I know are humble people who really do like look back. They look back to right. our tradition. And so it seems like, you know, that kind of gets at what you're talking about here, that there is this individualistic, isolated, I'm speaking in generalities here, but there is an individualistic isolated maybe evangelical or modern evangelical or fundamentalistic approach to understanding the bible and theology uh that has cut some of the ties to the church that has gone before it and is suspicious of tradition and so there, there's and that's oversimplification but I, I see that happening and then there are those that are saying listen we we need to actually Re make some of those connections again. We need to tie some of those ropes that we snipped on to tradition. And then on the, on the far end, of course, you've got Catholicism or fundamentalism or whatever on the extremes of, the, of that spectrum. So 
Can you talk a bit about tradition and like why why we tend to push back against it as evangelicals today? Uh, just as a kid that grew up in the '80s, like we, yeah, tradition is bad. Let's burn it to the ground. Like just culturally, rock and roll, like no tradition. Like you know, except our own traditions, of course, that we've come up with in the last <laughs> ten years, twenty years. Those are fine. Um, right. So what what is what what do we mean by tradition? Why is it important, and why are we suspicious of it as 21st century Christians? Well, yeah, our culture is, uh, and you see that, and we recognize it, right, culturally and politically, that we reject tradition innately. That's part of our, how we're wired. Even in, I think we could do an analysis of the American culture and how we prize individuals. We're far more of a celebrity-driven culture Mm -hmm. than we are an institutional uh, culture. And so that obviously plays into it. We could talk about what became of the fundamentalist modernist controversies in the early 20th century and how that created personality driven approaches to, to even ministry. And you, that's still with us. Um, I, I, and of course you, you have the reality that tradition is misused by professing yeah. Christians, particularly Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy and other groups that are, that are using it wrongly. Um, tradition is a biblical word. Some people, Christians may not be aware of it. it's in your Bible. Um, it's used both in a good way and negative way in scripture. So classically, negatively, you have um, texts like uh, Mark seven thirteen, where Jesus is talking about voiding the word of God by tradition, condemning the Pharisees. You have Paul in Colossians 2, 8, talking about philosophy according to human tradition um, and uh, uh, not according to Christ. And then you also have tradition uh, commended in 1 Corinthians eleven two or Second uh, Thessalonians two fifteen, and Paul's exhorting the church to stand firm to the traditions you heard from us. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the early church, that grew to an understanding of that um, tradition was what the apostles gave us, certainly in Scripture, as the only divine and authoritative source, uh, but then also interpreted according to the apostolic rule or the, the doctrine that the apostles passed on. Uh, scripture assumes that we have a, a, a summary, a synthesis of what the Bible means by what it says. Um, you know, we could go through all the ways that that's uh, summarized in the Bible, the whole counsel of God or the faith or the good deposit. Um, Paul does not tell Timothy to give the guys he's training Bibles and some grammatical principles and see what they come up with theologically. He tells them to pass on what you've heard from me, uh, that they would be able to teach others also. Um, and that that apostolic succession of doctrine, not office, uh, that apostolic succession is to be carried through the church. Um, and we're to have regard for how God in his spirit has done that very thing and has preserved the uh, fundamental truths of of our faith. Now, this really then came to the fore in the Reformation, but what was not being debated, uh, contrary to some caricatures today, was whether or not we have tradition. What was being debated is whether tradition is a fallible but necessary uh, understanding of, of Scripture and where to have regard, especially where there's been great consensus in church history, like the creeds and significant teachers and writers, or whether tradition is a second source of revelation that is given and interpreted by the church. That's the Roman Catholic view. Um, and that's what the split was over. Mm-hmm. The Roman view was novel at that time. It really comes um, into greater clarity in the 12th, 13th centuries in the medieval period. And so that's really what the debate was over. It was it was radicals who were arguing for rejecting all of 
all of tradition before them, not the reformers. Um, it was always understood that Christ has one body, he has one bride, and we are to understand Scripture uh, as Christians have understood it. And so the charge really, our, our controversy with Rome uh, is not that they they regard tradition and, and we think tradition's bad. Our really controversy with Rome is that they're presumptuous to call themselves the Catholic Church and that they're to import the Romish uh, traditions as uh, divinely given right. and then norming and binding on Christians. That's our controversy. It's not that um, we have the right and prerogative to interpret the Bible however way we want and, and call it Christian. Uh, that That's not what Sol Scriptura ever meant. Um, tradition is is good. Tradition's unavoidable. Uh, we all have it. Things are passed down to us, um, and of course, they're all to be submitted to and evaluate according to Scripture. Um, that's what we've been saying. It really shouldn't be, as you mentioned, it shouldn't be a, this novel thing to us. It should be taken for granted. Yeah, I, I think that the um, the suspicion of tradition is it's in the minds of some that I've interacted with not the guys that are doing all the talking or much of the talking, but in the, in the minds of a lot of lay people is because they, they don't know what we mean by tradition, right? It's like, well, so they just, they just think of the broadly, right? Like, okay, the traditions of the Catholic church and really the discussion that, that we're sort of leaning into here is a discussion on hermeneutics, right? It's a discussion on theology. Yeah. And so we're, we're not talking about church traditions that a lot of Baptists have in their mind, right? Like, oh, that we have, communion so many days a year or like you know that we have it once a month like no no no. it's a it's a deeper more principal level of tradition that we're talking about right that has to do with hermeneutics and theology and so the the tradition the this argument for tradition or recovering tradition right and that's you would say that we're looking to recover the the, the traditions that built the particular Baptists, right? It's like that gave birth to it. That's it yeah. was traditions that these different streams that all came together and connected. So, what what are the fundamental elements of that tradition that that you're appealing to that that we point to in the midst of this discussion with you know other people online that are uncomfortable with it? Typically, what I do when I talk about this in the church, just just with with ordinary Christians is I point to the front part of our confession of the second London confession chapters one to eight. And this is where we join with Christians going before and saying the same things that Christians have been saying, according to scripture um, for centuries. Um, we embrace many, I don't know if many Baptists realize this, but at least the second London, uh, we embrace the Nicene creed in uh, chapter eight, um, the, the, we embrace the Council of Chalcedon, the Chalcedon language is used in the Baptist Catechism. If you moved outside the Second London Confession, you had the General Baptists in the 17th century that were um, uh, pointing to the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. Um, Hercules Collins included it in his the Nicene Creed in his uh, Orthodox Catechism. So going back to our forebears, the, the originators of our particular stream, uh, there was, in their minds, there was no, th this was not what we were fighting over, and we were not divorcing ourselves from the Catholic small C tradition. And I still think that's a good Catholicity, um, and it's not inconsistent to be Baptist and Catholic in that sense in terms right. of the universal church. And that's what we mean. That's what we're calling Christians to understand. We've neglected these things for a long time for various reasons. I think in our churches, um, many pastors are just untrained and ignorant of what we confess according to Scripture here, and don't understand that 
our controversies with Rome on the doctrine of salvation, and even our our um, controversies as Baptists and our distinctives as Baptists, it relates to the church. We see these as continuous with and consistent with Catholic small C Christianity. In fact, that's why we hold these positions. And our charge against Rome is that you actually forget what you confess about God in Christ when you get to your doctrine of salvation and sacramentalism, that you're actually rejecting fundamental truths about the being of God and the person of Christ and his work. Um, so we're, I think Christians in the standing that we have these controversies and these divides and the corruptions of Christianity have not studied or been just exposed to where our specific controversies are, where we differ, and that it's not on those things that Christians have been confessing for for centuries well i know in my case like you know i went to i went to a bible college i didn't go to regular college uh, i didn't think i'd live long enough to make it through college before i was converted so what was the point so i got converted i ultimately uh, went to moody bible institute which is uh i think a, a well-respected bible college among christians you know today in america and uh, it's a very dispensational school, but, you know, people seem to respect it. And then from there, I, I went to the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And I think that that's a, a, a fairly respected, a pretty respected seminary out there that, that people in America look at and go, yeah, that's a good seminary. But, uh, but I'll tell you what I didn't get from, from, from those classes uh, at, those, at, at those institutions is I, I, I didn't get a lot of investigation or study, not a lot, into uh, where our faith comes from and by faith i mean the articulation of our faith and so like uh in other words there was a lot of these are the doctrines that we believe and this is why we believe them in the bible i got a lot of that um but i didn't get much i got a little but i didn't get much from here's a development of this historically and this is our connection to and actually i got more of that at moody to be honest uh, surprisingly enough, uh, I got uh, I got a lot of that where they were you know really forcing us to go back and to, and to trace these things more. But you take a church history class or something, and that's about it. But when it comes to theology uh, and even preaching, uh, I, we, we didn't get like at the hermeneutical level, at uh, at the theological level, what it meant for us to be really rooted in the the, the work of God throughout the generations and articulating the faith for us. So the idea of Catholicity outside of understanding there's a universal church wasn't really developed. And so I, I under, I get why, because like that was, that was where I grew up. I grew up in those, in those schools. Um, and it wasn't really until I, I was reading outside of the required reading for the institutions that I began to interact more and more with this idea of Catholicity. Um, can, can, maybe you could speak to that a little bit for us. Now, that's a word that's getting thrown around a lot, uh, Catholicity, Reformed Catholicity. Just can you summarize that? So, like, people are seeing it, like, oh, there's a book out there, Swain, and, like, people are making references. What do we mean when we say Reformed Catholicity? Well, we just mean that we're seeing ourselves as reforming the Church of Christ, not starting a revolution and making another church or being a schism from it, and that we have things to learn from the brothers and sisters that preceded us and that we're building we trust on their shoulders and what they've seen in god's word and reforming it certainly revising it correcting it according to scripture um but not throwing it out wholesale and starting over again 
with you know just us in the Bible in a in a in a room as it were mm-hmm. isolated. That's what the Jehovah's Witness do. Um, and I think you know I, going back to your story with Moody. I mean, I have a very similar story with that. I was in. Uh, hermeneutics and historical theology at the same time in seminary. And I was really enjoying reading uh, in historical theology, reading um, the primary sources and these these guys from the Puritans, the patristics, all this stuff. And then I was go to hermeneutics and be taught that these guys didn't know how to read the Bible. Um, and yeah. that incongruity eventually unwound until I became where the position where I'm at now. And I think Christians are still wrestling with that and unaware of uh, that we can't hold we're not going to hold orthodox conclusions um in our confession while we're using interpretive methods that are antithetical to it Mm. and that's really a lot of the divide and debate that we're uh, confronting is you have hermeneutics that really come out of the enlightenment hermeneutics come out of the academy that come out from uh harnack and schleiermacher and these guys who were dead set on a project to undermine christian orthodoxy and to detach it from uh the Christian faith, reinventing a new Christianity, really. Um, we, even though we reject their conclusions as, as heterodox, we've still stuck with their methods. Um, and e- even the invention of, uh, sometimes I'll use, you know, as an illustration, Schleiermacher's invention of historical theology. Historical theology is a category, is a modern that is ironically used to isolate us from history. It used to be just theology. Yeah. <laughs> Those were guys we interacted with. This was a conversation we were having with Christians who came before us. Now we have it sequestered in this category right. of, yeah, if you can get around to it, if you have time, maybe if you want to take an elective, you can think about what other Christians thought about the Bible. But mainly it's yeah. about what's happened you know, recently. And so in terms of Reformed Catholicity, we're trying to bring that wall down. We're trying to re-engage um, the church Catholic, the church universal down through the ages. That doesn't mean imbibing everything that it comes down from the past, right, of um, it, correcting everything according to scripture, uh, but that we're re-engaged with the church um, down through the ages and benefiting and deepening and not just throwing it out um, because it's old, antiquated, or we don't get it on immediately, intuitively when we read languages foreign to us. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like I I remember I read when I was a young Christian, I read C.S. Lewis. I don't even remember. You can tell me where I read this. But um, he was he was taking issue with what he called chronological snobbery. Right. As if, uh, you know, yeah. the, the, the things of the past, like, oh, look, bless their heart. You know, they did their best. You know, those those primitive Baptists did their best. Those those uh, those those early those early Christians that uh, that didn't have the benefit of of the academy, bless their hearts. They couldn't really understand what we understand now. So we're in a better position to really right. tackle these issues. So the chronological snobbery thing just it should rub us the wrong way. Otherwise, how did how did we articulate these doctrines of the Trinity? But I'm also wondering what that's on your end, right? Yeah, it's on my end. <laughs> it's okay. But I'm wondering, and, and you can help me think through this, um, what, where is the disconnect? Like, Because I know that there are people, like most recently, uh, James White seems to be a guy that's pretty vocal against the, the encouragement that some Baptist seminaries have given for their students to read Thomas Aquinas, which shouldn't be controversial at all. We were reading the church fathers, both in, in Bible college and in seminary like that. You do read that stuff. Right. So that's a, that's a part of it. Yeah. But like why? And, and I, try, I mean, I'm hoping we can actually be charitable. Why? Why is there so much triggering when it comes to Thomas Aquinas? But then 
maybe there's there's a greater pass given to Augustine, right? Or uh, or one, one of the one of the creeds, or or is there? Because it seems like there. I'm I'm confused. I'm I'm really confused at the idea. Like you can't read Thomas Aquinas because if you accept one part of his works, you have to accept all of it. That, that's that's the impression that I'm getting. And that's just never, I mean, goodness sakes, I haven't operated that way. I don't know any church that's operated that way historically. We, that's good. It's not even everybody that put together the, the second London agreed on everything. Like they, they put down the things that they did agree on here. And it's like, we don't, so can you unpack this? Like what, what is going on? Why is there such a triggering response in some to Thomas Aquinas right now? Well, I think some of it is, just ad hominem um, and genetic fallacy that, you know, throwing out, uh, uh, you know, everything because someone got something wrong, as you, as you, as you point out, that that's an untenable position. Um, none of us operate that way. We would literally be by ourselves, isolated. Right. And, and maybe some are, are thinking that way. They're, they, they operate in their, their world, they're ignorant, and they operate in Christianity as a sect in their own gurus for lack of a better word in their own little tribe um yeah we we can't do that consistently and you're right that the the issues if you if you toss out aquinas on the doctrine of god and the issues that are particularly being pointed to um you're gonna have to also pull out anselm augustine you're gonna have to undo uh nicaea and eventually you're just throwing out everybody um nobody's arguing for a wholesale embracing of tradition as it were of everything everyone said or that if somebody said something helpful on certain um, areas of theology or doctrine that you're now obligated to embrace everything they said or nothing um, and we're not consistent with that like you said at all and as you mentioned baptists have disagreed with each other that's painfully obvious to, to all of us um, and that's true in every tradition right. um, and the, the whole point of confessions were to actually allow for that liberty mm-hmm. um, and for us to have different interpretive takes on passages of scripture while setting out the boundaries and the, the, the core truths that Christians have agreed on down through the ages. So I, I, I don't know that I can really uh, locate or understand why the animosity about this. Uh, what my theory is just that we've been teaching certain prominent teachers and pastors have been teaching what is contrary to the creedal, confessional consensus of uh, the faith and even to with their own some guys are uh, purported to, to be reformed baptists that are teaching things that are inconsistent with the second one confession and it can't be reconciled with it and um when you point that out to them they they have a decision to make they can humble themselves and be corrected or they can you know call you a you know incipient papist or you're gonna lead everybody to rome or all these kind of crazy things i mean those kind of insults that get thrown around, particularly online, are just—they're—they have no basis in reality. I want to take seriously a confession that deliberately mm. rejects Rome and its errors, refers to the Pope as that Antichrist. I, I'm not in danger of swimming the tiger at all. Right. And Aquinas and anyone else is only helpful insofar as they're consistent with that, in in my view. Um, and so, th- I don't—I think it's—it's it's really just a honestly a rhetorical strategy it's it's a sign of a lack of teachability and humility um and we certainly want to pray for a better interaction and discourse uh from our brothers well 
then maybe maybe you know, that's something I think we should be praying for. Especially, listen, when it gets hot, when when Christians are being ugly to each other, or when we're being ugly to each other, right? More like, listen, because I've been ugly before, sure. Um, really, we should be moved to pray for ourselves and for our brothers and and for the conflict. Uh, two things. One is uh, my favorite thing to do because I, I, I so I've. I've received some fair criticism and a whole lot of uh, ridiculously unfair criticism. And anytime the, the outlandish things are said, um, I just share them with everybody uh, because I think they're awesome. Like <laughs> I was called a Marxist for preaching at a conference in Portland that was basically put on by Humble Beast and Trinity Baptist Church. Um, yeah, and it was really, I was like, I'm a Marxist. Okay, fine. So, like, hey, listen, if you get called crazy things, uh, an incipient papist, an incipient papist, and just, you know what? Maybe we should make some merch and just uh, just roll with it, right? <laughs> incipient papist Swim in the fiber. with, it, with yeah. a little asterisk on it and then just, you know, 1689 or something at the bottom. Yeah. Second London Confession. All right, second of all, uh, that's my encouragement to everybody. Listen, man, if, if, if you're being mocked, uh, d- don't sweat it. Like, let your character or your own words speak for themselves. And the people that really matter, aren't likely to like get behind the, the false accusations. Second thing is, well, go go ahead, please. No, I was just going to say just to that really quick. Sorry, brother is I think it also, the Lord uses it to expose uh, usually the guys shouting and throwing insults don't have an argument. Yeah. And the very fact that they're doing that is conceding the fact they don't have an argument. So I think it's helpful for people to see that. Just pay attention to who's yelling and who's actually soberly walking through things. Yeah. I always, I always look for that, that very, like that iron clad, tight, logical argument ending answer. Yeah, but still. Like you, you make your great big argument. You'll go, yeah, but still, you're still going to lead to Rome. But like that's, yeah, but still is not really a refutation or an argument. So I'm not buying that. Um, listen, but I'm not trying to pick on anybody. I just, but I see, I see some really bad things being said about some people that I really respect. And um, I think it's, it's worth us considering. Uh, okay. So obviously there are some, some, some books like that we would encourage people to read. I assume, you know, you, you liked Reformed Catholicity uh, by Swain. Um are, are yeah. there, are, so is that a good book to start with? Because I felt like that was a good book. It didn't. It didn't seem too yeah. hard. It didn't seem hard I, to I read. I think that'd be a, no. I think that'd be a good book to start with. I think um, uh, Baptists and the Christian Tradition by um, Lucas Stamps edited. It's a it's a collaborative volume. That's that'd be a good book mm-hmm. for Baptists to look at. Um, I think um, looking at uh, Craig Carter's book, interpreting Scripture with the Great Tradition, mm-hmm. and he especially does a good job of showing. Um, the the hermeneutical shift um, in the last couple of centuries and 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 um, overcoming that and, and getting in step with the the church and rediscovering pro nicene theology and hermeneutics and all these things um, so I think Carter's work would be helpful I think just even I I tweeted and, and posted uh, yesterday excerpts from John Murray and his right. essay tradition Romish or Protestant you know and just rereading that from Murray it's clear it's helpful. Um, he makes the proper distinctions. It's available online. Uh, there's, we're not talking about anything new um, mm-hmm. at all, and there's plenty of resources that are available for us. Yeah, I, I love you put that quote up, man. It, I just smiled so big. I was in between watching my scary movies. I'm on sabbatical, everybody, so give me a break. I can watch as much scary movies as I want. So I'm watching my scary movies at night, and I, I, in between, I, I saw that. I think it was, I think that was when I saw it. You put that up last night, right? Or it was yesterday, sometime. Yeah. Yeah. Oh boy. 
I was just like, it it's so good. And I don't know, man. I just, you know what it's like when you make an argument and you get busted and you're wrong and you know it. Like, you know, like you, you get caught. You're like, oh, wow. I, you know, like I, I've made the argument like, oh, that person never said that. And then they show me where somebody says it. And I'm like, oh, shoot. I, you know what? I'm, I'm wrong. And that was one of those quotes where I'm like, it's such a, first of all, everybody loves and respects John Murray. Like everybody's like John Murray, everybody benefits from John Murray. And for John Murray to say so succinctly and clearly what a lot of this argument has, has been about uh, on the side of Reformed Baptists, actual Reformed Baptists, was beautiful. Oh, man, so good. All right, so good, good recommendation. And, uh, and what, about, what about you, Steve? Um, podcast still running? You're still, uh, you're still particular potting? You're still uh, doing your thing? It's been it's been dormant for us for a while. We've uh, we've just been busy with ministry. Frankly, yeah. um, there's a lot going on. We just were able to uh, see one of our uh, former brothers now installed as a pastor in a church north of us. Awesome. And we have just a lot of things happening in Sacramento, so we're encouraged, but we're busy. So, willing this coming fall, particularly Baptist, we'll get back up and going. Myself, my fellow pastor Robert Briggs, um, and we have some other writing projects we'd like to to do and, and continue to share. Um, what the Lord is teaching us and, and just praying for, I think what's, what's been, you know, so evident, uh, both good and bad in the midst of the current controversies is, uh, what the older Christians refer to as the moral habitus for theology, the theological habitus, the habit we have, the character that, um, theology presupposes a godly character. Mm -hmm. And so, um, if any of us are going to advance in understanding and knowing God according to his word. We need humility. We need uh, uh, self-control. And so uh, uh, hopefully that, you know, by God's grace, we can uh, exemplify that, can uh, confess and correct when we're wrong, and just continue trying to um, minister God's word faithfully. That's a good word, man. That's good. And, and where's Briggs from? Where, 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 where is he from? Your co-pastor. Scotland. Yeah, where? where yeah. Whereabouts? Do you know? He's uh, uh, Edinburgh, but then grew up near Glasgow. Okay, okay. Because uh, Edinburgh. they love it when you say Edinburgh. Oh, I'm sure they, yeah, no, I know. Yeah, well, you know, the they're, the, the, the Scots are very sensitive people, you know. Uh, they're very delicate, and so you got to treat them carefully. Otherwise, they get all riley. No, it's funny because I was, I, was, I was on a podcast with him, and, uh, and anytime I hear somebody with that Scottish accent, I just feel like they should have war paint on or blood in their beard or something. Like there, there's, there, there's, there's a whole other tradition with them that, uh, that isn't a part of most of our tradition. Uh, but it, uh, really, I'm, I'm excited that you guys uh, are pastoring together because, um, you know, I'm getting to know you. Uh, I only know him from a distance, but uh, everything that I see, man, is really encouraging. Glad you guys are there in California doing your thing. And if people want to follow you, you are on Twitter. What is your handle? Uh, Steve Meister VDM. All right. So uh, follow Steve and you're going to see all the good quotes that, uh, well, really that wreak havoc on bad arguments because those quotes are just so good. Uh, and listen, if you want to join the conversation, if you have some questions uh, for, for Steve or Jimmy and I at Doctrine and Devotion, you can just hit up us, hit us up on Twitter. Um, our Twitter handle is at Doc and Devo. You are also on Instagram. You can find us at Facebook, facebook.com slash Doctrine and Devotion. And of course, we have the website, doctrineanddevotion.com. We have episodes that drop every Monday and Thursday. And then we have extra content that's commercial, free, exclusive, just for our supporters. If you're interested in that, 
You can scroll down on your pod player and look for a link that says support this podcast. Click that and you'll have the opportunity to sign up for all access. Or you can just go to our website, doctrineanddevotion.com slash all access. There you get devotions five days a week as we meditate on scripture and you get an extra podcast called Banter of Truth. Thanks for listening. We appreciate it. And we hope to interact with you all on Twitter. God bless. Thank you.